Good morning. It is Monday, January 20th, 8.35 a.m. I hope you all had a good week. I know I did. It was pretty busy. There were some really mundane yet also very stressful moments throughout the week that were just so boring to even talk about or mention or think about. But everything else surrounding those events was just fine. So, as you know, today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I hope that you guys are enjoying the remembrance. And, of course, I know you all are working to push forth his legacy. And we've got a long way to go. We may never get there. But... You don't get anywhere unless you start somewhere. I wanted to, you know, because I I sell vintage clothes duh, and vintage objects and antique things. And, you know, I come across a lot of items that are reminders of the type of society Americans existed in let's just put it that way I see I see objects where black people you know are fellow citizens they're portrayed in kind of oversimplified ways or stereotypes like you know, um, the enslaved governess, Mammy, or the, um, you know, the ignorant, you know, an ignorant yokel. You see all those like little coin banks and cookie jars and objects that would be in everyday use, or at least in, in common, (coughs) the common periphery of American life woven into the fabric like a little tiny piece of a turd in a a punch bowl Um, you see that you see those at flea markets and it's it's just it's a very um, what is the word I'm looking for it's it's a poignant reminder of of the ugliness of racism and in what you what we were what we accepted as normal it's not normal it's not right that's that's the fact um there's we still have so much further to go on that too you know or in in movies and literature and art you know the visual you know the visual world um in in art space, in intellectual space, the the whitewashing and you know making invisible of black people in our in our media, in our culture, and designating them to servile roles. There is one film that I think that that stands out from the kind of pre-civil rights era 
called This Life We Live. And I forget the name of all the actors. It it is the main the main actor though is Betty Davis. But I highly recommend you go see it. Um she is the sum of it is she is a racist bad girl who is in a incestuous relationship with her uncle and she gets in a drunk driving accident and kills somebody with her car and she tries to blame it on a black guy and it's a very powerful film at the time it was kind of not very well received but I think that you guys should see that film because first of all Betty Davis is horrid in it <laughs> like she plays she's good at being evil you know um so if you haven't it's you have to see all of Betty Davis's films um but even you know ab- above the first of that is the actor the actor who portrays the young black man Perry Clay his name was Ernest Anderson and the director wanted him to use a stereotypical quote black voice he wanted him to use a voice that was not his normal speaking voice uh, which would include um heavily exaggerated colloquial pronunciation um vernacular that is unique to or supposed to be unique to rural black people at the time he wanted he wanted um Ernest to to take on this voice which was not his own and also not in the voice of the character the character is a that uh, of Perry Clay is a very um intelligent articulate and also in, and also of someone who wants to further their education and and also to have a career this is the person in the movie who is accused of of hitting someone with his car and killing them. But Ernest Anderson, he refused to dumb his voice down. He refused to dumb his character down. And it was a, it was, um, and he got his way. He stood his ground and he got his way on that. Now, that's a small issue in the scheme of things, but it, it, it is in glaring contrast to the way black people were portrayed during that time for a very long time. So I highly recommend you watch that movie and see what I mean. Um, and he's, he's a great actor. He did a wonderful job and it gives you, it gives you a glimpse of how our our very messed up society tries to train people about who other people are and you know who non-white people are it's a lot of it's a lie a lot of it's false so I highly recommend that um, 
before the time of civil rights and also during the time of, of the civil rights movement, lynching was very, very more, whether it's common or not, lynching happened. And that's something that black people lived in fear of constantly especially in more rural areas in mining towns in mill towns areas where white people felt that felt threatened by them which we can say everywhere um one that i want to bring into light which i found out about on the world history hour and did a little more research on so i i i just found out about it uh, a few days ago on the BBC World History Hour. But this is about the earliest execution ever performed in America. Okay, this this is a very if there are people that are that are young listening to this and nieces and nephews, I think that you should leave the room and have mom tell you about it later because it's very um it's very very sad and it's very hard hard to uh, hear some of the details are very difficult so the this was the youngest execution of a murder that had been alleged to have been committed by George Junius Stinney Jr. He was only 14 years old. He lived in the mill town of Alcolu, South Carolina. He and his mother and father and four brothers and sisters all lived in a company house. So um, when you work for the mill, they give you a house and you own, well, you don't really own it, but it's housing for you there. And I believe that a portion of your pay comes out to kind of subsidize the house and, um, you know, you owe your life to the company store kind of thing. Everybody in this town worked at the mill. So he was accused of murdering two white girls aged 7 and 11 with a blunt metal railroad spike. He was accused of that. Um, and he was sentenced to death for this. The way they pinned it on him, they also, they initially had also pinned it on his older brother, John. They took both of them in. Uh, a few days, I think maybe a few days before, or maybe the day of, it's not clear. But these two girls, these two sisters, had stopped and asked them where they could find a particular flower that grew along the kind of along the railroad tracks and so they stopped and asked him and they you know I guess told them but then shortly after the girls were dead they were found dead and they had been beaten very severely with what you know the railroad spike which was near near them and the older girl even though there was no evidence of 
sexual uh, abuse or or rape they she her um, near her privates were bruised so no one really knows if that happened during the murder or if that was a prior injury so I, I suppose somebody saw them talking to to the girls and they both of the boys were brought in John was released and they kept George around at the police station and they starved him and he wasn't allowed to have any kind of counsel he wasn't allowed to talk to his parents the parents were not allowed to come to the police station and he was just kept there while two cops interrogated and grilled him and they starved him and then they would bribe him with food if he would finally offer a written conviction he was a child it's it reminds me a lot of the central park five but it's just one kid you know what i mean and so he was immediately pretty soon after brought to trial after they got the conviction and it was an all-white jury at the time blacks in that region black people could not vote they they were not allowed to vote now maybe they technically had the vote but they made it very very difficult through a series of cockamamie tests and all manner of voter suppression if there was any technical issue about voting they got around it so yeah it was an all an all white jury no black people were allowed in the courtroom whatsoever the parents and and the siblings were not allowed in the courtroom and they were at this time fearing for their lives they were afraid of all being lynched can you imagine your son gets taken away from you your child gets taken away from him from you you never get to see him again never you never see him again he goes on he's put on trial for a murder that he did not commit you know he was a little guy he was only five feet tall and he weighed just barely 90 pounds the spike it's not some the amount of force that he would have had to wield to to do this to commit this murder was beyond his physical capacity I'm pretty sure that some gross pervert who had already molested the older girl did it to them. That's what I think. Not this not this child. The trial presentation only lasted two and a half hours. George was appointed a not even a a real criminal defense lawyer he was appointed the tax commissioner who was running for public office to defend him and he did not challenge the police testimony which was the only evidence offered so the guys the same guys that coerced him into confessing 
they were the same ones who offered the only evidence against this child. When they, on the day of of his execution, right before that, there was a a group that granted a small amount of clemency to to the family and the father was allowed to say some final words to his son. He was the only one out of the whole family and it was right before his son was to be executed. So like I told you he was a little he was a little guy and he was he was pretty small. Like you know like those I think about like you know those guys in high school who are like high school age I was homeschooled, but I remember seeing them in homeschool group. They were like, they were George's age. And yeah, they were like freshmen in high school age. And you know, they're kind of little, like they hadn't had their growth spurt yet. They're kind of tiny. And they look like they could be 10 years old or something. Because they're just like, I'm like, I really haven't had any kind of growth spurt. That's what George was like. He was, he was a, a little, a little, um, young teen. It was like a little freshman. So they, he was so small. In fact, he had to use a Bible, a Bible that he was given in prison, which he had to carry with him to the electric chair. And that was used as his, as his booster seat. And they strapped him in. They they found when he was done, one of his. It's so sad what happened to his body. He was crying. And there you could see the tears on his face. after the execution had been performed. <laughs> there are so many other things that are so... <laughs> there are so many things that are, like, really disturbing about his, uh... About what they did to this child. <laughs> um... I was going to tell you guys, but it's just so, it's so, like, they destroyed his body, how his body was destroyed. They, they buried him in an unmarked grave in the black cemetery where the rest of, you know, his other, if he had deceased ancestors or relatives where they were buried and the grave was unmarked because the family didn't want him to be further degraded in death and shortly after the execution I mean almost probably almost immediately after the execution the family fled they they moved way far away. I think they moved 
a little further north, but, you know, they had to leave their home, like, their, their job, everything, the, for fear of the entire family being lynched. It's something that... It's more than just insult to injury. It's adding degradation to an unjust death. So that was in 1944, if I hadn't stated that before. And that was... That was a, even though the execution of one so young was not common, the manner in which those trials proceeded and the unfairness of the judicial system, we're still dealing with with layers and layers of that. You know, you flash forward to, you know, 55 years later in in the 80s with the Central Park Five. The same, the same level and same manner of, of incompetence and injustice from our judicial system and from, from our police forces. You flash forward now Trayvon Martin, you know, it's, it's something that is, that we have a very, very long way to go. And we, everyone has to be reminded of that. And black lives do matter. They matter. If you ever start, if you ever start feeling like everything is okay or everything's going to be okay everyone's surrounded by you know we're in our bubble of liberal enjoyment and our you know we we as liberals enjoy like the luxuries of each other's company and self-care and all those things, body acceptance, all those things, we have a long way to go to. And it's not over. It may never be over in our lifetimes. Even if we are bionically, our lives are bionically enhanced and we end up living an extra hundred years, it still won't be over. So, yes, I am grateful to Dr. King for for starting and for having the boldness to shine light on darkness and to replace hate with love. I truly am. So, somebody at the rag place found a book of Keats poetry. Don't worry, I'm not going to impose Keats upon you. But this is this is a huge departure from from the execution of In fact, I think it's such a huge departure. I'm going to wait until next week to read it because it's just not it's too 
this letter is too silly. Um, I feel, I feel like I just need to still hold space for this situation. And I want to let you guys know that 70 years later, his case was overturned. His case was overturned 70 years later. And he, his execution was finally annulled. And that was from a historian who lived in Alkaloo. His name was George Frierson. And he teamed up with two lawyers, Steve McKenzie and Matt Burgess. 70 years later, that's why history, that's why we should always be searching in history really searching what happened so we can make the change that's necessary. 70 years is too little too late. But there, I don't think it's too late to discover and to remember what really happened back then, especially when we tend to like especially people who love history and love vintage clothing and antique clothing and antique surroundings and aesthetics. When we're enjoying all, all the benefits of it, we're also enjoying a lot of, a lot of us white people are enjoying white privilege because we're not thinking about the aspects of, of what people who were not white went through during that time. And the sacrifices they made, they were forced to make on so many levels just to, to live in this oppressive society. So I hope that you guys have a great day and I hope that you take time to remember and, and be thankful for each other. I know I will. Taylor's coming over. I'm going to get some work done. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.